This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dobzhansky said that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. However, as John Coffin said, although no biological explanation makes sense except in the light of evolution, it does not follow that all evolutionary explanations make sense. <laughs> so take everything you heard today, including what I said, with a grain of salt. Another important point when it comes to humans is Dobzhansky himself said, human evolution cannot be understand, understood as a purely biological process, nor can it be adequately described as a history of culture. It is the interaction of biology and culture, what we would now call gene culture coevolution. And there exists a feedback between the biological and cultural processes. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about humans as part of biology. And Nico Thunbergen suggested that for any biological entity, you should ask, how does it function? How did it evolve? How did the entity develop? How does it develop during your lifetime? And what are the proximate causes that regulate its behavior? So we can ask the same questions about non-human and non-human awareness of death and understanding and personal mortality. And because of lack of time, I'm not going to give you my opinions on it. And just think about these questions and whether they have been answered today. And the Carter questions are, are humans unusual in aspects of these features? I think we are. The question is, there's a lot more we need to learn. When did these unusual aspects appear in human evolution? Again, you we left a lot of questions unanswered. And finally, what is the impact on the current human condition? At Carter, we tend to focus on the origins of humans and where we came from and tend to not spend a lot of time about how it impacts us directly. But obviously, we're very interested in that. And I'd like to point out that uh, um, Ingrid Banishka Perkins has been in contact with several organizations relevant to death awareness and mortality, Here's a list of academic and research organizations as well as general and public outreach organizations. And these are all very active groups and some of them are actually represented here today or who, who have uh, spread the word about the symposium. So I encourage you to get involved in this because I think uh, we all need to not only face this problem but also talk about it freely both from the evolutionary perspective as well as uh, the practical perspective. So with that, I'm going to start up the question and answer session, and Nick's going to lead the first session. I need to get questions from the second session, if there are any. I've got to quickly, we'll go through them. So Nick's up next, I think. How do children of atheists uh, get to know, what do they learn about death? And um, it's obviously a rather difficult issue to research in, in the United States because there aren't enough of them. But um, around the world, there are, of course, parents who do not believe in the afterlife or any religious interpretation. Um, and has any study been done of those sorts of families and whether they in any, even possibly actually invent the afterlife for themselves? Paul. Well, I'm afraid the short answer to that particular interesting question is that we don't know. The research has not been conducted, although it would be fair to say, of course, that any child growing up with an atheistic family, certainly in the United States um, or Western Europe or Scandinavia where atheism is more frequent, 
um, may not be exposed exclusively to atheistic assumptions about the nature of death. Um, they will hear other voices. And so a more complex answer to the question is how do children sift these various competing voices which they're likely to hear? Um, just one other point, which is that, of course, there are places, particularly contemporary China, where the dominant um, view, at least, is no, there's no institutionally or government-sanctioned um, afterlife beliefs. And so research there would be obviously worthwhile conducting. Okay. Uh, question for either Dr. Biro or Dr. Mas- Masloff. I, um, let's give it to Dr. Masloff. Uh, what do we know about the reaction of a dog to the death of its human caregiver or owner? And, of course, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with stories about Greyfriars, Bobby, and so on. Do you want to pass it to Dora? Do, 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 you come up and I'll answer it, too. Dora might have a better answer. Sorry, I, I, I think I spoke to the lady who asked this question um, during the break, but um, there are some very interesting anecdotal um, stories about um, dogs essentially mourning the death of their owners. Um, 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 I'm currently on sabbatical in Japan, and Japan has one of these very, very famous stories. Many of you will probably know um, uh, uh, a dog owner who used to take his dog to the train station every day for I can't remember how many years and would leave him there, go off to work and then come back in the evening and the dog would be there at the station waiting for him um, every single day and when the owner passed away without the dog's knowledge I guess in the sense that the dog wasn't there when the owner died um, the dog continued to turn up at the train station um, daily um, for I think 19 years or some, something like that um, there is now a statue to this dog at, at that uh, train station in Tokyo. Um, so I think, anecdotally at least, we've got some extremely um, striking cases of, of dogs um, uh, with very, very strong bonds um, to their human owners, kind of keeping those strong bonds going even beyond uh, death. Okay. Yep. Um, Jack, another one for you. Uh, the questioner says that in London she saw uh, crows attacking and killing another crow. Um, can you comment on that and how they could at the same time be fascinated by the death of an animal but also bring it about? There have been lots of documentations of crows killing other crows and ravens killing ravens, and um, there might be several motivations for that. Some of them are uh, just involved with territorial excursion, going in the wrong territory and being attacked. And once a victim is basically um, helpless, others pile in on that and, and kill that animal. It's pretty routine. I had seen it uh, myself when a bird was hit by a car and it was wounded and fluttering around and other crows killed that individual. So these sorts of things happen. They might be somewhat misdirected uh, behavior in that case. But there is a very interesting study from Austria where ravens were um, socially punishing each other for kind of social transgressions, and they would break the other raven's wing in that respect. So they didn't kill it, but they functionally killed it, uh, rendering it unable to fly. So that one was harder to explain uh, as kind of a misdirected uh, bit of behavior. Another question, another question for Paul. Um, Dora Biro discussed whether or not it's a good idea to uh, let 
animals and zoos be exposed to the death of their um, of, 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 of their cellmates, zoomates. Um, does Dr. Harris think it would be a good idea for humans to be exposed to the death, directly exposed to the death of their children or family in a way, of course, which doesn't happen generally now? Yes, I'm very reluctant to draw prescriptive conclusions from the modest research base we have, but um, I guess what we do know is that around the world, children vary dramatically in the extent of exposure to um, death. So, for example, it would be nice to hear from Rita, if I can identify her, who will tell you a little bit about the role that children are ascribed both prior to death and immediately thereafter in in Madagascar. Yeah, so if you followed the description I gave of the funerals, I didn't mention the children, but you should imagine at the gathering of, especially when the meals are happening, um, as people arrive at um, at the village, newcomers tend to go into the house and they will see the deceased person for the first time and they kind of, there are these eruptions of wailing and crying and the kids who are basically there to hang out and eat the food and play, you kind of have these moments of gathering and they try to, they're very, I guess, attracted and scared by what is going on. So you would always see them hanging from the windows and you know, trying to peer into the house to witness both um, the kind of display of emotion and then through that also to get you know, a close view of the deceased and which is that the corpse is laid in the house under a mosquito net and it's you know, a very powerful kind of experience um, which is paired up with a very... Um, hands-on experience of animal death. So children are playing with animals, literally playing with animals and kind of expecting them quite inquisitively by pulling bits and sort of saying, oh, it's not moving anymore. Uh, It's dead. So there is this experience of animal death and human death, which is, you know, much more available uh, than it is in, in our Societies, and then there are these very dramatic moments for some children. So, if a mother or a father uh, dies, I'm not sure about siblings, but certainly I've seen it with parents. Um, children are kind of at the mo- just before the coffin gets um, closed uh, to be taken away to the cemetery. The child, the children are taken and kind of forced to face the face of the deceased they're kind of put on top of the coffin and and they're they're told look this is your mother she's dead never again utter her name so there is a taboo in you can refer to the mother but you shouldn't use the name with which she was known so there is this very dramatic kind of separation moment of face to face with the with the body of the parent. So anyway, yeah, it's a very um, available experience, which I think you know, is integrated in both. Paul hinted in his talk, suggested in his talk, that children pick up the notion that there is something that survives after death, after they have consolidated the kind of biological understanding of death, and that 
came through in Madagascar as well in the research we've done together. It seems that, although logically it doesn't have to be that way, but it seems that before children can understand the ancestors, these people who are who have arrived at the place where they are, as I describe them, they kind of have to put together the biological understanding of this dead body and what that means. Joe, uh, question about how facial expressions in mammals fit into your revised model of fear. I think what this could be about is that you've talked about uh, these uh, subconscious limbic Reactions, um, which can produce obviously flight and um, and uh, escape and so on, but they can also produce uh, frightened, fearful faces. Now, um, that's obviously not to do with escaping from anything. What, are, what what do you see as the role of, of facial expressions associated with fear? And yes, you do. And can um, can why is it we find it so easy to read these across species? And could actually other species read them across species too? So I think, you know, this is a good example of the uh, conflation that we have between innate behavioral patterns and subjective experiences. So the expression on a face is not controlled by the same system in the brain that gives rise to the subjective experience. Um, So I I think those have to be kept separate. Um, What was the... Follow up, but whether uh, this cross-species recognition, right? So, well, first of all, you asked about the universality of it, but that's been questioned. I mean, the the um, if you show people these pictures and give them multiple choice answers to select from, they're more accurate than if they have to spontaneously generate uh, you know, its fear, anger, or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain recognizable um, uh, exper- uh, expressions around the world, because obviously there are to some extent. And again, these are innate patterns that are different from the experiences that people have. So these patterns, some of them can be uh, obviously conserved across other primates and people, or even uh, dogs and certain mouth movements. So there's nothing uh, magical about that. Those are just behaviors that have been wired in because of their signal value and their ability to uh, direct um, uh, behaviors of other animals. So I, I think it's just important that we separate the experiences, subjective experiences, that we interpret that go with these faces because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Uh, experience is not a, uh, or expressions are not a 100% reliable way of judging exactly what's on someone's mind. Um, what, what do you think the function of expressing fear is? It's obviously... You don't really want your enemy to know how you're feeling, do you? Well, it, um, I would call it expressing you know, responses to threats rather than fear itself. Um, you know, I think that's one of those just-so stories. We don't know exactly why, it would, uh, why we do this. I think it's, uh, it may be a signaling uh, for conspecific. So if you're expressing some response to danger, other like kind can use that as a, um, uh, a signal to stay away and uh, perhaps uh, extend their life. Most of the matter in the universe we cannot see or characterize, and we understand so little of the origins of consciousness. Is it not, therefore, foolish to dismiss concepts we currently um, consider uh, magical or religious or in practice? In, in 
sorry, in practice, something practicum that we conclude we are, we are, well, I think the message is, um, Ajita, should you be considering some alternative kind of explanations for um, uh, our reality denial and religious beliefs and um, so on, because actually they may not just be defense mechanisms, they may get closer to the truth of the world we live in. Where's the guy? Where gone? There you are. <laughs> Well, I don't have a specific answer except to say that I just presented one possible explanation for a lot of phenomena, but you can see that today we've raised a lot more questions than answers, so I think it just bespeaks the notion that this whole area needs a lot more research, and I just keep my mind open about it. Okay, I think we've run the gamut of these questions. Should we okay. go to yours? Okay. All right. Um, so m many of the questions are very personal and lengthy and be hard to deal with in a general audience. So those who had the very personal questions should probably approach the specific speaker if they have a question. So a question to Sheldon. Uh, comment on the field of neuroethology, study of the brain during religious experience, and perhaps comment on the near-death experience. I'm, I'm not equipped on the neuroethology uh, part of the question to weigh in. Um, there is a body of literature that I'm vaguely aware of that shows that a particular part of one's brain lights up um, in the context of uh, any religious experience broadly defined. Um, interesting and perhaps important, but I'm, I'm literally not sufficiently familiar uh, or have the skills to judge. Uh, Near-death experiences are um, also complex and um, difficult. We are, uh, we, I am in conjunction with a graduate student at the University of Padua in Italy, Simone Bianco. Uh, we're studying people that have had near-death experiences, and um, we're thinking about them as natural phenomenon, um, which just means we're agnostic with regard to what's actually happening. And our interest is just the uh, psychological consequences of having had those experiences. So we're trying to assemble a large enough group of people around the world who have had near-death experiences, and we're comparing them uh, with a matched control group of folks who have not to see what happens in our experiments uh, when they're subliminally primed uh, to be reminded of their mortality. If you ask folks that have had near-death experiences uh, to comment on what has happened to them thereafter, uh, they fairly consistently say that these are transformative experiences and that for the most part uh, they're no longer uh, afraid of um, dying. And uh, I'll get back to you if we get to come back again in a year or two. I'll let you know. Or please do write me if anybody's interested and I'll let you know the outcome of that research. One more question. Sure. So another question to Sheldon. If increased awareness of inevitability of death and our mortality exacerbate individual and societal maladaptive behaviors, how do we move towards an acceptance of death? No. Um. 
uh, to be silly at the end of a long day, if I could answer that question, uh, I would be chugging rum out of a coconut with my Nobel Prize on the beach someplace. Um, but uh, what I would say, uh, uh, these are great questions. So what I would say, and I, I do believe this is important, uh, it, we need to distinguish between the relatively fleeting reminders of death that we use in our studies. So, you know, somebody standing in front of a funeral parlor, somebody uh, where we blast the word death subliminally, they, and they're not even aware that that has happened. Um, that's very different than the sustained and very conscious contemplation of one's mortality uh, that a lot of religious and philosophical traditions are advising. So, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the medieval monks that work with a skull uh, on their desks or anybody um, who's uh, had enough free time and uh, read Heidegger's Being in Time. It's taken me a lifetime, but that's surely uh, more than fleeting. And um, I suspect, and I think, this, I think this gets back to something that Nick said at the end of his talk, and some of the other folks have also, and that's uh, culture matters uh, as a grotesque overgeneralization. Uh, we in the West um, live in a culture where we, grow to, we go to great lengths uh, to kind of uh, bury death anxiety. And um, it's not death anxiety per se, we would argue, that produces pernicious outcomes. It's when we, psychologically speaking, you know, try and banish it and bury it underneath the psychological bushes that it comes back to bear malignant fruit. And so uh, and Ajit had a list of organizations uh, up on the screen, and many of them, such as the Death Cafe, I think are well-intentioned efforts to provide uh, very public spaces so that people uh, generally in a secular society uh, can start to have open and candid conversations, and I think that would be a good start. Okay, so related to that, uh, to Colin Renfrew, if Western society were to continue on a more secular path, rejecting the concept of an afterlife and the immortality of the soul, could we expect a decline in death and mourning rituals? Uh, I think not necessarily so. Uh, ritual um, is something which doesn't necessarily uh, depend, or I suppose it always depends to some extent on a world view, but it doesn't depend on a world view uh, which involves uh, belief uh, in a, a deity or a divinity or, or in an afterlife. Uh, and uh, I think it's the case, as indeed we've seen, we've, we've talked of um, uh, these uh, early burials in the Upper Paleolithic period, which were clearly seriously undertaken and very carefully undertaken. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, of course, it's very difficult to talk about the um, development of religion in prehistoric times when we don't have written texts. And in those very early times, we uh, don't uh, have any way of denying that there may have been religious beliefs, but we certainly don't have any iconography uh, that would um, uh, promote a notion uh, that uh, there the was uh, a specific divinity. It would be too long an aside to go on to talk about 
what I think are probably the erroneous ideas of a great earth mother in upper Paleolithic times. Uh, but clearly, um, as we've heard so well uh, documented, um, uh, death uh, does uh, engender uh, 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 regret in those uh, living, a mourning uh, in those that remain. And though we've heard very interesting narratives uh, about how uh, the ceremonies of mourning uh, are not always uh, focused on regret of the passing of the deceased person but have a very active life uh, in the uh, remaining community um, I think uh, it's uh, appropriate and I think for an agnostic um, person uh, uh, it is appropriate to note uh, the, the passing of a deceased person a friend or someone who is much admired so I think the commemoration uh, of the dead uh, does not need to be based uh, on any uh, uh, sincere or sophisticated uh, religious belief systems. So I don't know if that answers that. A brief answer. Thank you. Okay, uh, question for Nick. Uh, could we not equally consider suicide as a positive selection mechanism against diseases of evolution and disadvantages states of mind. In other words, could suicide have been selected for rather than a failure to select against? I, I think there's a, you could make a case that some suicides, of, if, if, if they were undertaken with that kind of motive, um, not in do occur, but would have actually uh, could have even been selected for to take yourself out of Society when you're sick or or, or, or uh, a burden on others um, would would actually uh, end up increasing the uh, a kind of eugenic mechanism of a sort. Um, we don't. I mean, there's no evidence that animals do anything like that, which um, uh, suggests that we're not likely to find it in humans unless it's a highly rationalised intellectual response. But we do know plenty of examples. Um, interesting enough of altruistic suicide, rather like that, where the wonderful example, I wish I'd had time to show the pictures of it too. Um, there's a village in Iam in, in Derbyshire in England, um, which in 1666, when the Great Plague struck, it, it, uh, so it arrived in this village through some fleas on a bale of cloth which had been delivered there. And um, the villagers realised immediately the danger they were in. Their response wasn't, wasn't to leave, it was to quarantine the village. They basically made the decision, no one will leave, um, no one will come in, uh, and food and things were passed across through a kind of barrier which didn't allow any spread of the disease. And uh, in that village of the 600 people originally there, 400 died. But by doing that, they very likely uh, saved an awful lot of lives of others uh, outside of course, unrelated others. It's, this is a very high level of selection if something like that was, could be seen to be beneficial to, to human genome. But um, I think, I mean, I think, yes, the answer is that there are possibilities that, that uh, removing ourselves can, could, could, could have positive effects. But I don't think you can make any case like that for by far the majority of suicides, which, as I said, seem to be largely self-interested, though maybe you think that's a hard word to use about them. 
They are self-euthanasia. People are trying to uh, mend their own uh, inner life, their inner world. One more thing. So it's an appropriate follow-up. Could not egoistic suicide be selected for since it would remove from the gene pool young people suffering from mental illness such as depression prior to reproduction, increased suicide in young depressed people who have a more realistic grasp of studies showed that non-depressed people have a more optimistic view of reality, uh, and whereas depressed people actually have better grasp of reality, in other words, so-called depressive realism. I almost could have written that question Mm -hmm. myself. I didn't. (laughs) Um, Yes, for firstly on this issue of mental illness, uh, it's hugely exaggerated the extent to which suicide is related to mental illness. it's co- commonly said in the West that 90% of suicides have got major uh, depressive illness. Um, this is based on so-called psychological autopsies. When you ask after someone's died, you ask their friends and their family and so on, um, uh, what signs of it did you see? It's, of course, the, the evidence you get back from that is going to be hugely biased. Once somebody's killed themselves, in retrospect, of course, you can find all sorts of reasons why you might have thought it was going to happen. But my more important point is that those statistics of 90% are only for uh, Europe and America. Go across the rest of the world, India, China, whatever, and you find uh, the rates of illness associated with, of mental illness associated with suicide way, way down. Um, and by far the majority, there's a re- big review in science recently, um, have no identifiable uh, psychiatric mental illness. Um, among the Palawan, uh, the people in Palawan, I mentioned Charles MacDonald's study of, of there's this area of area, villages which have very high suicide rates. They've recently done a further study in which they did uh, psychological autopsies on them. They found that uh, there was no, almost no noticeable uh, evidence of, of mental illness. Um, there was... Uh, the one or two agoraphobia was apparently present in some of them, but no, no, no major uh, uh, issue which would it have been uh, wise to have removed from the population by letting these people kill themselves. Um, I, uh, I, I think that's a ro- wrong way to think about it, though, of course, um, if you think in eugenic terms, you know, we're going to, of course, always ask whether it would have been better for the species if these people hadn't lived. But I think in the particular cases, um, I mean, there are cases where uh, people who are seriously uh, malformed or ill um, can volunteer not to reproduce, for example, which is a kind of suicide. Um, that's not always a free decision which they make, but certainly in some cases have been. There are people who won't reproduce because they know that they'd be passing on faulty genes to their children, um, and that's a bit like what you're just talking about. That is a way in which, not exactly suicide, but t- denial of your contribution to the next generation um, could actually benefit the human genome. Mm. Thank you. Uh, just putting on my medical hat, I would suggest that. We do not exactly agree on this. I would suggest that in all societies there's a baseline rate of suicide that's associated with major depressive disorder, which is greatly upticked when there are activities of various kinds going on. So actually, we're coming close to the end. So the final question that somebody asked, which is a good one, is to each of the speakers, 
What is the next big question that the upcoming generation of researchers should seek to answer in our study of death? We just have enough time for each one of you to come and give one. I've just been speaking, so someone else first. Yeah, some, somebody come forward. If you, if you could have a wave of magic wand and have as much money as you want, which experiment would you do or, or research would you? Well, I, um, I, I need a glass of wine before I come up with an experiment, but I do think what these series of talks have illustrated for me is that there's a sort of, it's not a schism, it's too strong a word, but some of us have talked quite a lot about... Um, the awareness of one's own personal mortality and the terror or whatever that that evokes. Others of us, on the other hand, have thought about death with respect to loved ones, those that we, we, we lose and how we cope with their status within the broader social fabric. And so it, it does seem to me that we, uh, we researchers, investigators, might um, have a, com- a longer conversation about the extent to which those two lines of investigation should be brought together or whether one is much more important than the other. But they, it, it, in the course of the, of the day or the afternoon, I should say, they, they did seem to, we did seem to be talking to some extent about um, distinct themes. Yep. Anyone else with a paradigm for the future? I'll offer a quick note. I think that animals are much more aware of death than, than some people think, and getting at that better to understand the connection, I think the, the gradient between human, how humans view it and how animals view it, there's a lot more that can be done there. I'd just like to say how much uh, more we have to learn uh, about um, uh, beliefs in uh, life and in death, specifically uh, in early times, in prehistoric times, uh, and uh, how rich the data is uh, and how important it is uh, that the archaeological data is treated properly, that is to say, is uh, excavated in a way which reveals its context so that we learn something more about the beliefs of uh, past uh, world systems and how, this, uh, how easily this is destroyed uh, by uh, either uh, uh, unscrupulous or careless developments, but in particular uh, by uh, collectors who, who pay good money to have uh, artworks from the past which are ripped from their archaeological context and all information is thereby lost. And the, the record of the past is a diminishing uh, record and it's uh, diminished uh, in a very negative way uh, if people, private collectors or indeed museums pay money for, uh, to uh, essentially in order to have objects displayed in their museum without proper context there are in fact uh, destroying our hope of understanding uh, the world's archaeological heritage thank you okay if not I think I'll hand over to Pascal Gagneau, our associate director, has some closing remarks. So I'd like to thank all of you, especially the speakers, for an amazing lineup of talks and the audience, those here, those online across the city and across the world. It's very hard not to be touched by this topic. And uh, 
Please remember that while alive, you can be kind. That stops at some point. Thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.